Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 12 this morning. It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb, told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths, clothes, cloths, lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So if you guys remember, there's this, this big week that has transpired as we've been reading through these past couple chapters, where Jesus, previous, the Sunday previously, had come in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey as the crowd was praising him and, and chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Then on that following Thursday, uh, Jesus celebrates the Passover with, with his disciples. Remember, he institutes the Lord's Supper with them. Um, he even takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he tells a few of his, his disciples that you, you need to pray so that you don't fall into temptation. You guys remember this. Jesus then himself goes, you know, a stone's throw away, and he starts to pray, and he prays three times, and he, he's praying so that he does not fall into temptation, the temptation being not going through with what the Father had for him to do, which was to take the cup and, uh, and die on our behalf. So Jesus prays us three times, and he says, you know, nevertheless, your will be done. And so that was God's will. So Jesus went through with God's will, but God did strengthen Jesus. Remember, he sends angels to strengthen him and, and to get him through the next day. And even the hardship of that, that evening. So then Judas shows up with some Jewish leaders and soldiers at that point. Peter comes by, and he doesn't want them taking Jesus and arresting him, so he cuts off the ear of, of one of the soldiers. And Jesus says to him, you know, put the sword away. This isn't the time for swords. What I told you to do to be prepared to fight this battle is to pray, not to take out your sword, not to take out your gun, but to pray. Peter obviously did not do that. So Peter falls into temptation. Jesus is then arrested. He's put on trial. Remember, this was not a fair trial. It was not a correct trial. It was not uh, just because it's done under the cover of night, which was illegal. But they do this in the middle of the night. They finally sentence him to death. And the, the crime being what? What was his crime for him being sentenced to death? Blasphemy, right? Basically saying that he is the Son of God. And while ironically, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God, they did not believe him. So in their unbelief, they put him to death. Jesus is scourged. Remember that? Remember how I told you that a lot of men did not even survive the scourging? Jesus survives the scourging. He goes and he, they make him carry the, the cross beam of his cross. Remember this? But he's, he's so weak, physically weak, that he's not able to do it. So they pick another guy 
to help him carry it the rest of the way. That guy's name being Simon, right? Simon. And as he's walking, there's some old ladies behind him. I don't know if they were old, but there were some ladies behind him, wa- uh, walking behind him, and they were crying, and they were weeping. And what does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say that. <laughs> yeah, he says, don't weep for me. Weep for those who need it, the ones who, the unrepentant, the ones who are going to receive the justice of God. They're the ones that are going to need it because when the time comes, they can no longer run to the hills. They can no longer hide. They will be found and they will be judged. He says, weep for them. Don't weep for me because I choose this. I want to do this, right? And through this whole process, even, you know, going to the cross and hanging on the cross, there's so many people who have told him that if you are truly the son of God, why don't you save yourself? And, and the irony of that question, it's like what they don't understand and what we've sometimes failed to understand is that he isn't there to save himself. He's there to save who? Us. And for him to stay on the cross, for him to go through the suffering, is to actually save us. So if Jesus were to hypothetically have saved himself and taken himself off the cross, well, then we would still be dead in our sins. We ourselves would not be saved. So I'm thankful he doesn't listen to man, because man is obviously stupid sometimes. But he listens to the Father, he obeys, he's scourged, he's crucified, we saw last week where he gave up his spirit. Remember, he, he gives up his spirit and he dies upon the cross. He says, it is finished. Father, I commit into your hands my spirit. And at that point, this was before they came around to break his legs. They did not break his legs because they found out that he was actually dead. And he gets buried in a tomb. Now, what is so special about this tomb that we found out about last week is that it's actually from Joseph from Arimathea, if you guys remember this. In verses 50 through 56. Now, Joseph, Joseph from Arimathea was actually a disciple of Jesus. He was on the Sanhedrin, meaning he was on the council who decided to crucify Jesus. But the Bible tells us that he was not one of those that voted to crucify Jesus. He was obviously against that. The Bible tells us that he is him himself. He himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He knew that there was something beyond what he could see. But there's another interesting fact about Joseph is that he was rich. He was rich. So he was so rich that he actually had his own tombstone. Or not tombstone. What do you call this? Um, Grave, rock thing within a tomb. Yeah. Uh, A stone that covers the tomb. Um, But he was rich, and so it was his. And the point of that being is, one, that was prophetic. Because the Bible tells us, I, I believe it was in Psalm, that... Uh, Jesus would be buried amongst the rich. So he's buried in Joseph's tomb, who is rich. Um, he would die amongst the, 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 the thieves. Um, so that showed us that there was prophecy to this. But another point of this is that it, it takes away any speculation that they went to the wrong tomb after Jesus died. That they went and they checked the wrong tomb, that they went and found a tomb that was vacant and, you know, unoccupied, no, they knew exactly which tomb to go to because this was Joseph's tomb. Okay, it's not like this guy, you know, forgot the address of his tomb. Like, you wouldn't forget the address of your, your house, right? Um, he, was, he was rich. This was his. So that speculation's out the door. Then we get here into verse 1 of chapter 24. After we saw in verse 56 of the previous chapter, 
It says they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So now on the first day of the week. So they rested on the Sabbath. The Sabbath being what day of the week is that? Saturday. Saturday. So then the first day of the week being? Sunday. Sunday. So today is the first day of the week. And I'll tell you in a second why we kind of celebrate or have church on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. So now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. <coughs> now, if you can remember from last week, the reason that they came and brought the spices was part of their, their burial process, but the real main reason was so that their body wouldn't stink, right? It was to, to cover up the stench of a, of a dead body. So when Jesus was buried, his body had already had the initial preparation, which we saw in John chapter 19. Um, but they had here a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Um, these were spices, again, not to embalm the body, but to perfume it as it decayed. And they would use roughly about like 75 pounds of spices, which is a lot. Um, and that was extremely costly. Like that's costly now, but then it was, it was more. Um, there would be strips of cloth. They, were, they would wind around the body with the spices packed in. If you guys remember, like, Lazarus, it was very similar to that. Um, now, the ladies, they came, and they would add additional spices, which is what they were doing in verse 56 and now in verse 1, to continue to cover up the smell of the decaying body. So as we get here in verse 1, there's women mentioned, but there's no names. Well, John chapter 20 tells us a few of the names. Luke's going to tell us a few, too, in verse 10. But the first one that we see is Mary Magdalene. She's kind of the, the main woman, I would say, in this story. Um, John chapter 20, verse uh, 1, it says, The first day of the week uh, came Mary Magdalene early, when it was still dark. Matthew records another Mary as well. Um, same thing with Luke. Mark adds one more girl, uh, Salome. And then Luke adds another as well in verse 10, Joanna. So we've got these few women and probably a few others that are unnamed. Um, but each account gives us different names. But it's not a matter of there was different women in each one. It was just they just gave, there was, let's say there was eight women, and Luke gave four, Mark gave four, and John gave four, and they were just different ones of the eight. Um, so they're not contradicting, but just giving different names of the women that were there. Now, it's going to be interesting as we go on through this because um, Jesus reveals himself to women first and foremost. And do you know who the very first person that Jesus revealed himself to after his uh, resurrection? Mary. Which one? Magdalene, yeah. And I'll explain in a minute why that is interesting in and of itself. So first day of the week is Sunday. Sabbath being Saturday. So the question begs, well, why do Christians go to church on Sunday when God commanded that we honor the Sabbath? Right? You guys remember this? Genesis with the Israelites. He honored the Sabbath. Well, the real reason that we celebrate or have church on Sunday is because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus 
is highly vital and highly important to our faith. It is, it, it is the most important thing. I don't want to say the most because you have to have the birth of Jesus and you have to have the life of Jesus and you have to have the death of Jesus and then you also have to have the resurrection of Jesus. Like they're all vital and important to one another. But the resurrection is unique in of itself because nobody's ever done that. No, nobody can do that but the Son of God, right? So there's a vitality to that. There's an importance to that. So we celebrate, you know, and we honor our Lord by gathering together and worshiping on the first day of the week because that is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So again, the Sabbath is technically Saturday. We don't celebrate on a Saturday. Um, this was a command that was specific to Israel in Exodus. If you remember in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This was a clear commandment given to the Jews in this time. Now, originally, the church was, was, was composed of Jews. If you guys remember, at the very beginning of the church history, it was composed mainly of Jews. But then Gentiles started to be converted, and they started to be added to the church. Now, I would assume that a majority of us in this room would be defined as Gentiles, right? So we are, have been added to the church the very first Gentile converted was a centurion named Cornelius. We can actually see this in Acts chapter 10. And it was a strange thing, I think, for the Jews at that point for a Gentile to be saved and to be added to the church. It was something that was new to them. And so in Acts chapter 11, this was something that had to be dealt with. Peter deals with this in a meeting in regards to the Gentiles being added. And as Paul began to minister to Gentiles around the world, because we know Paul was a great missionary you know, starting churches here and there, spreading the gospel from here to there. Gentiles from around the world would, would come to know Christ. They would be added to the church. And the question started to come up, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? What do we do with the Gentile believers? They didn't know if these people should be first required to be converted to Judaism, right? That they should become Jews to be circumcised, or whether that just believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection was enough to be saved. So Paul deals with this issue, and the church holds a council in Acts 15, and Peter says this. <clears throat> he says in verse 10 of, and 11 of Acts 15, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And the final outcome in verse 19 and 21 says, Now therefore, why do you test God by... Nope. I copied and pasted the same verse. Now I've got to go to Acts. Turn to the Acts 15. Verses 19 through 21. It says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from, from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses says has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every 
Sabbath. So the church decided not to require the Gentiles to become Jews because that is not what God has said, right? The Gentiles did not need to become Jews, but they were warning and they did want Gentiles to be careful, just as the Jews, to be careful of things like fornication so that wouldn't be offensive to the Jews. And so as you continue on through the history of the church, you see, even as we just read right there in verse 21, that they read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That was a Jewish thing. But then when the church started, in Acts 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. <laughs> he, he taught for a long time, guys. We're talking like half a day. But the point being is that it was on the first day of the week that they gathered and they went through the word of God together in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 2 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, is that I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you, as you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And so Paul, again, pointing out the fact that the churches were meeting on the first day of the week, that day being Sunday. So we meet on the first day of the week. It's church history. It's what, it's what we've always done. Now, can you have church on a Saturday? Sure. Can you have church on a Monday? Tuesday? Wednesday? Not a Tuesday, guys. I'm just kidding. Wednesday? Thursday? Friday? Saturday? Sunday? Monday? I'm just kidding. So the point being is that you can have church on any day, right? Because then Paul even goes on to say, I think somewhere in the Corinthians, I can't remember which one, Corinthians or Romans, that, that the point being is that you need to honor every day as if it's unto the Lord and treat every day holy. You know, and, and that there, he says some people esteem this day over the other. Just honor the Lord. And so we just, I, as a church, we've decided it's that we want to honor the Lord on the day that he was resurrected, continuing on with, with church history. <clears throat> the Sabbath, again, being in the, in the original context was for the Jews, but now that Gentiles are added, it's not just... Jewish. And we as Gentiles don't need to become Jews. That's important. That we don't need to become anything. That nobody has to become anything. That all we must do to be part of the church, that all we must do to be saved is to have faith. Right? That's how we receive the grace of God and the salvation that saves us. So, turn back to Luke. Or I have to turn back to Luke. Verse 2, chapter 24. It says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So the women came first day of the week. Um, they were going to prepare, the, continue to, to prepare the body to add to the spices. And as they came, to their dismay, they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Now, interestingly enough, here's these women who are coming. And even if it was men, I don't even know if the men could even move this tomb either. <coughs> or the stone. But the women, surely, they probably couldn't. They even suggested in Mark chapter 16, verse 3, as they were preparing to go and do this, 
They said to one another, who's going to roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They're like, okay, we're, we're going in faith, but we're perplexed because we don't know what to do once we get there. Because the guard's not going to do it. I mean, the guard's there to guard it. The guard's there to make sure that the thieves and the, the disciples, the Jews, that they don't take the body away. And so they have this thought, again, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb? I mean, again, the, the, the stone here is one to two tons. That's a lot of weight, guys. This is impossible for them to do this. So what do you do? What do they do? Well, they go in faith. And I like that because I've seen this in my own life where many times we wonder how certain things are going to get done. And I don't always walk in faith when this happens, but I'm thankful that God is faithful even when not. Is that many times we wonder how something is going to get done and we have no idea or plan but when we get there, we realize that God has already taken care of it. Because they have this thought, who's going to roll it away? And they get there, and guess what's happened? It's rolled away. I love that. God takes care of us. In Matthew 27, in verses 65 through 66, it reminds us, again, that there was a guard there. The stone could not have been rolled away by the women. They weren't strong enough. Or by the disciples, because... One, we know they weren't brave enough, right? They all skedaddled when Jesus was crucified. Um, but they weren't brave enough because they wouldn't have been able to, to overcome the guards or go up against the guards. And so we know that no one rolled this stone away but one. Anyone know who rolled the stone away? An angel. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, it says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. That's pretty awesome. So verse 3, chapter 24, it says, They went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly, and as it happened, and it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? So they're already talking about who's going to roll the stone away. They get there. I'm sure that was astonishing in and of itself. They decide, let's go in. Let's check on the body. They get in there. And it says in verse 4 that they were greatly perplexed. Greatly perplexed about this. Because there was no body. I think they were astonished. They were, I think in one sense they were probably shocked. Because here they, they saw Jesus being put in there. Now he's gone. I'm sure a million things were going through their heads. Just wondering, being confused. Being in a state of loss. Uncertain as to what is happening. Yet here there's two angels. Two men it says stood by them in shining garments. We know these to be angels, okay? The shining garments being in contrast to, I think, the, the shadows of the tomb and, you know, death that has surrounded it. But they're shining. They illuminate. The words here, it speaks of gleaming like lightning. 
This wasn't like, I mean, this is probably something greater than anything we have prob probably have ever put our eyes upon. The point being here is a similar word to when Jesus' clothes were, were shining and bright in the Mount of Transfiguration. This was the Shekinah glory of God. The, the same thing that we see happening with Moses when he meets on the mount and he sees God's glory passing by. And he comes down off the mountain, he's shining, and people are freaking out because of how, how bright he is. But then that glory starts to fade in the Old Testament you see in Moses. And the glory here, God, it does not fade, it's bright. And here that's probably staggering to see what they see, but still also confusing. But then these angels speak and they say this to them. I'm, I'm sure they understand what they're thinking or what they hear them saying. And so they, they basically answer the questions that the women are having. Like, where's Jesus? What happened? What, what's going on? And they say this, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Basically saying you will not find a living person at a graveyard. I mean, this is, it, it's funny in how they do say this and phrase it, but in one sense, it, it puts into perspective that, that God is not dead. God is alive. This is what is so unique about Jesus Christ, is that he rose from the dead. He is a living God. Unique from any other man-made God, because as the New Testament tells us that they're false, but they're also dead. But God, who is the one true and living God, and continues to live, that nothing can kill God. Nothing can kill God. So the angels sound as if the women should have realized that Jesus would rise from the dead. Why? Again, why do you seek the living among the dead? And they say this in verse 6, he's not here. But what? He's risen. Why is the resurrection so important, guys? If I haven't already said it? No one else can do it? No one else can do it? That's, I mean, that's, that is one aspect of it, but that's not what makes it important, I guess. There's plenty of things in this world that only one person can do. So what, what, why is it so vital? Why is it so important? How many times do we hear that uh, Jesus has to die for your sins? Right? Like, we, a lot, right? Like, Jesus had to die for your sins. Is that true? Yes. What is the consequence of sin? Death. Right? So, so Jesus pays for that sin by dying. Is that right? Okay. Now, in Satan's eyes, and maybe in a lot of people's eyes, when Jesus actually dies, does that prove that Jesus is God? No. Not, not really. Because who can die? Everyone. Right? We, we all can. But... For Jesus to rise again proves that he is greater than what? Not everyone. Well, I mean, yes, everyone. That's, that's a given, but something specific. Death, right? It proves that he has victory. What is the one way to prove that you have victory over death? Is by being alive, right? I mean, that just makes sense. But Jesus had to die. 
correct? Like that was part of the consequence. That was part of the payment. So Jesus dies as part of the payment, but then he proves that he is greater and has victory over the, 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 the shackles and the strength of death, which everyone succumbs to, but Jesus comes back to life, meaning that he has defeated death. He has, he has victory. So that, I mean, Paul says it best, and I can't remember the verse, but he says, with, without the resurrection of Christ, we would still be dead in our sins. It, it doesn't prove the victory of death unless someone comes back to life and has the power over it to come back to life. Yet Jesus does. This is what's amazing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, 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 it solidifies everything. It proves his birth, it proves his life and his perfection, it proves his death, it proves the fact that he, you know, became the propitiation for our sins. It proved all of that, that he is God and that he defeated death and he defeated sin. Paul says, oh, um, death, where is your victory? Oh, Hades, where is your sting? Or is it the other way around? Right? Death has, has no victory over us anymore. Nothing. None of it. Lost its sting. What's how how scary is it be without a stinger? It's still scary. To know that's still scary. We understand that. But it, it's it's nothing, right? It has no power. That's the point that Paul is making. Death no longer doesn't have its stinger anymore, meaning that it's it's powerless. It's like going up against a lion without its teeth. And it's still scary, yes. Alright, let's say a lion without its teeth and claws. And then it just bites you, but it's like, it's just a gummy feeling. Um, you get the point that I'm saying, though. There is no sting anymore. So again, they say in verse 6, he's not here, he's risen. Jesus is gone. Said, but they say this. Listen. Remember how he spoke to you when you were still in Galilee. Saying the Son of Man. They're like, look, do you remember what he said? He said this. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Again, they, they remind them of what he said. That Jesus himself must do these things. He has to do these things. This is the only way. Jesus does it. He does it. But what they needed to remember was what he said. And once they remembered what he said, it all clicked. It all made sense. And I think sometimes for us, when we're in this state of confusion, or we don't know what's going on, sometimes we just need to remember what God has said in his word. And then it brings clarity, it, bring, it brings hope, it brings joy. Because we remember the promises, we remember the things that he has said. Because everything that Jesus says about you and himself has come to pass, will come to pass. It will never fail. It will never not happen. He is a man of his word. And so again, these things must happen. In verse 9 it says, Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven, and to all the rest. Who are the eleven? The disciples. Where's the twelfth one? Dead. How? He what? He hanged himself. Use the proper grammar. He hanged himself. 
Now, huh? No. How do you do it upside down? I can't hear you, but we'll, we'll come to me afterwards. Alright, so they returned from the tomb, told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. <laughs> it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So they come to the to the eleven apostles, disciples, and, and to the rest, because it was more than just the twelve original disciples, correct? Like these women also would be considered disciples. Okay? Now there was twelve specific men that God chose who would then be raised from disciples to apostles. Obviously, Judas not being one of those, but they would fill this spot. And so they come and they share the news to the 11 disciples, or 11 apostles. Uh, we got Mary Magdalene. Okay, She is from the city of Magdala on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. She has a really interesting story. We know that she is a follower of Jesus, but before she was a follower of Jesus, she, was, she actually was demon-possessed. And Jesus actually casted out seven demons from her. We see this in Luke chapter 8. You probably read that two years ago. Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. Um, we're going to see in a minute that Peter and John will run to the tomb to see for themselves these, these things that the women came to tell them about. And Mary is going to follow after them. So Mary Magdalene, she's going to follow after them. And so after Peter and John, as they... Uh, scour the tomb and they look through it they leave and jesus this is where he shows up jesus shows up to mary and mary will be the first one to see jesus in his resurrected body we actually see, see this in the gospel of john chapter 20. and so before meeting jesus we know that she was a sinful woman um, she was possessed but she is the very first one that gets to see jesus i love that what does that show Sure, so are men though. Women and men are awesome. I don't think this is a gender thing. I think I think partly it is because in their culture women were, were, were lesser than men. But I think the, the point of it being is that here's this woman, here's this human being who was far from God, and yet God had mercy on her. God saved her. And then God continued to bless her and, and continued to show himself to her. And so she would be, again, the first one to see our risen Lord. In verse 11, it says, And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Idle tales being foolish talk, nonsense. Uh, medical writers, they actually use this word for, for someone who is delirious or hysterical. So it's not that the women were hysterical or delirious or crazy, but it was the disciples themselves, it was the men, whoever else was there, they didn't believe what they were saying. And so without, uh, without this belief, to them it sounded like crazy talk. And it, it's crazy too, because here's the disciples who were prepared for this. Right? They should have known this. And yet it was a lack of belief in what they were saying. Yet Peter, Peter had a little bit of belief, a little bit of hope. So it says in verse 12 that he arose and he ran to the tomb and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what happened. He's like, what if, what if this crazy talk 
is actually not crazy talk? What if it's actually genuine? What if it's real? The Gospel of John gives us a more deeper account of this. In verse 3 it says, Peter therefore he went out, and the other disciple, and we're going to the tomb. So he's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but i got to see it from my eyes, so I'm going to go run to the tomb. But Peter's excited. He's like, I'm, I'm not waiting around, I'm not waiting until tomorrow, I'm not even going to walk there, I'm running. So he runs. But someone goes with him. Anybody know who it is? John. So John, in the book of John, writes this. Okay? He, he, writes, he writes of the account of him and Peter going to the tomb. He says, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, the other disciple being John, he doesn't name himself, he is the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and so they both ran together, and he says this, the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. What does that mean? John's pastor, right? And John, John it was a race to get there, and I, I, th I think this is comical because it's like, John... You really had to put that in there and make Peter look like this? I mean, this is for all of history that we know that John was a faster runner than Peter. Like, that's a total guy thing. No, he runs like a 4-3. Both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Have you guys seen that meme? What is it? Um, with, uh... What's the Marvel movie? Captain America? Um, and you know where he's like, on your left? They have a meme of that where like one of them is John and one of them is Peter. Where they're running. You know where they're like constantly running? Oh, yeah, the Falcon guy. Yeah. That's a funny meme. Something. I don't know. So again, the other disciple is, is John referring to himself. So in verse 5, John beats him there. It says he, speaking of Peter, Stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying in the linen cloths, but folded together in place by itself. So from John's description, it sounds like that, that the linen cloth that was around Jesus, that was, you know, wrapping the, the spices on his body, it looked basically like an empty cocoon, as if the body had just kind of slipped out from there, but there was a separate piece of cloth, this napkin, that was used to cover the head and it was folded neatly and laid off to the side. I don't know what that represents. I think you can speculate. I've heard a lot of speculation, but I don't like to use speculation as the gospel truth, um, so we'll leave it at that. But one thing that you can, I guess, take from this is that, that Jesus was tidy. He was clean. He was neat. And he left his room clean before he left. No. So, I've heard it said, have you guys heard of the, um, there's this, this Jewish, uh, I've corrected people on this because I've actually used it before a long time ago, where there's this Jewish custom that when they eat, that typically um, they would have their napkin, and if they had to go to the bathroom or something, they would leave their, their napkin disheveled signifying that they were just going somewhere and that they were, no, that they would fold it, and if they were going somewhere and they were coming back, it would stay folded. But if they were completely done with their meal, it wouldn't be folded, it would be disheveled and, and whatnot, basically signifying that they were done and they weren't coming back to the table. 
And I've heard a lot of people, even a lot, I've heard a lot of pastors, and I've even read a lot of commentaries, where they use that, that story, that, that Jewish story of Jesus is signifying here by holding up his napkin that he's coming back, that he's not finished yet. You know, and that's, in one sense, that's true, because Jesus is coming back, right? Because Jesus resurrected here. He's going to ascend in a little while. He's going to ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. But at some point, he's going to come back, after tarrying for a while, he's going to come back and gather his church together. Well, the further I looked into it, I realized, and you guys probably don't know anything about this, but if you ever hear this in the future, that story is actually fake. <laughs> the story of... Uh, the Jewish custom. It's not a true Jewish custom. But I've heard so many pastors, I've heard so many preachers use that in telling of that story, uh, of, of using that analogy that Jesus is coming back. The point being is this. You don't need that to prove that Jesus is coming back. We have scripture. Right? So when, when Jesus folds this up, this napkin, I don't know what it means. I don't know if there's more to it, and I don't want to. I don't want to make up something that's not true to try to come up with some cool analogy. But it is folded up. We see that Peter notices this. Uh, we see it in the Gospel of John. We see it here in the Gospel of Luke, and he leaves, and he says in verse twelve that he marveled to himself at what had happened. 